Okay, so we have a new episode of Ledges and Leaders, and today it's great to have Noam here. So you're somebody that has really changed this transportation world with Waze. I mean, what was done there completely like led the industry uh, for, for quite some time and still is today and help people navigate their routes much better, save people time. And now what you're doing with Post is you're really trying to take on and change the news industry by providing uh, sources that are from a wide array of different areas that can give the user the opportunity to choose the best option um, and not just have to be pick one place and that's that. Um, so I'm excited to have you here and to get into your story. Well, thank you for inviting me. Awesome. So where did this kind of passion for entrepreneurship, business leadership, like where did that begin? Where did that come from? It's interesting. I, I don't really have a specific moment in time or, or event that I can point to. Um, I think the question is more about sort of leadership um, and leading situations that you're in has always been kind of natural uh, to me. I, I happened to have stumbled into high tech in 96 when kind of things were just getting started in Israel, but I think I could have ended up in any other industry as well. You know, life is a series of accidents that kind of happen. Later on, you create a theory about it looking back, but it's the reality, it's a bunch of accidents. So, you know, you kind of, you have this intention to be in this area. Like what, what, how did you begin your first business like in the space? So I got introduced into tech in Israel in 96 uh, through a friend of my brother who was working at a startup and they were looking for an Israeli who could speak English, speak English and Hebrew to write a, a <laughs> request for the chief scientist for $160,000, which then was an unbelievable amount of money. And I was a student at the time. I, you know, it sounded interesting. I did it. We got the money. I was very excited. And then the, in, my brother's friend left that startup to start another company and I joined him. And then through that, we together co-founded the Delta three. Um, and so, I think that like one of the lessons that I've learned is that how important it is to sort of follow or, or connect with people along the way. Um, and many times following the right person is more important than following the right company in that sense, or mm -hmm. working with the right person is more important than choosing the company. So how did you first get involved in ways and meet the people there? So, uh, Basically, I'd been running a company called Intercast in Israel. It was an HD content mm. delivery company. And it was a big mistake of mine, one of the worst experiences of my life, two very bad years. Oh. And then we ended up shutting the company down in 2008 with the, the crash of, the, of everything. But the, the, what was good about it is that the person who ran engineering for me was a good friend of one of the founders of Waze. And so we kept hearing about each other's stories. You know, they were going through this, we were going through that, through this joint friend we were hearing about. And so when, when we had to shut down the company, he basically said that they were looking for a CEO. That was one of their uh, A-round investor uh, requirements. And that began that cycle of, I met, I met the founders and we just spent like three months together before we even went to the investor. And so be, that, that kind of go back to those personal connections, right? By complete luck this person happened to be friends of mine and friends of Amir and so we got to know each other through that and you know kind of the rest is history and so why do you think that they felt you were well positioned to be the CEO and really lead the company I mean you had this other experience you know there was things you learned from there but maybe it wasn't the outcome that you wanted why do you think that they thought you were a great fit 
You know, at the end of the day, everything is personal. Uh, we make our decisions in split seconds based on our gut feelings. And we have, we've had millions of years of evolution to be really good at our gut feelings, right? And after that, we spend time analytically trying to explain our decision. This is one of the things that I think has been the hardest for me to understand. And this goes through, you know, the VC you're going to meet for fundraising, the customer you're going to try to sell to, anyone you have that. The first few minutes of interaction are really going to determine the outcome much more than the content of what you say. And so for us, I think that was the big, we, we really clicked as people in terms of values, what we care about, it, how we imagine a successful company's culture, you know, a, a variety of different things. Yes, there were a lot of objective metrics that we could look at, but I, again, I don't think those objective metrics are really what matter. And this is something a lot of people have a very hard time. You know, they jump into a meeting and they're pitching a VC and they jump in immediately with all the content and they're trying to you know, put as many slides into that half hour meeting as possible. And I think when you begin thinking about it as that kind of initial interaction and what is it about those first few minutes that connect between the two people, if you can be very clear about understanding that, I think everything else kind of comes along. And obviously this is true for sales that people buy things from people. They don't buy things from companies, right? And so there's all the different levels. It goes back to the human interaction. So, you know, now you're involved with the company, what were like your first steps to really go out and like raise capital and, you know, how did, how did you go and start acquiring users? I mean, there was, you know, you're building out this product, like what were the first steps to go and bring this to the world? So, you know, there, there are lots of questions about how do you get your first, uh, you know, thousand users, right? There, there are all different mm -hmm. uh, options. And I think uh, Y Combinator clearly say it, that these are usually non-scalable, you know, one-off things, again, <laughs> kind of a, a luck, if you want to call it that way, or personal connections. For us, it was really about leveraging the moment that Elon Musk took over um, uh, Twitter. And that created this kind of moment in time that we could launch something quickly, was not really good. The product was very early. You know, they say, you have to be embarrassed. If you're not embarrassed by your first product, then you launch too late. So. We were embarrassed, but that allowed us to gain our first users in post and really get kind of that, that mm -hmm. initial group of users that with that we could build further. How did you also do it for ways, like get initial users for ways? Like, well, was it just like word of mouth? You'd like show the product to somebody, they loved it, they loved the experience, they told other people, like, or was it really in a marketing push? So uh, with ways, it was interesting. We, we originally wanted to focus on three cities in the U.S., to start, you know, focused and network effects, et cetera. But very quickly we realized that people were just lying, right? They're saying I'm coming from Texas, from you know, Boston, but they're actually coming from somewhere else. And it, we, we kind of ended up having to open up the US. And then we started seeing people in Italy and in Europe and different places logging in, saying they're American and, and just, you know, their GPS shows where they are. And so we kind of realized that you can't control, uh, uh, when you talk about community type, uh, uh, products, you can't really control what's going to happen. And so we opened up globally and, you know, these micro communities started forming it, it, throughout our, our journey at Waze. We've had a very hard time explaining exactly why a specific country or city took off and another didn't. Now, sometimes we have a clear explanation, like in Los Angeles, it was Carmageddon, a big event that we did together with ABC7, whatever. And so it's very kind of top down structure. Italy, like when we launched in Europe, First day, we had you know, five signups from Germany and seven signups from ah. France and 5,000 signups from Italy. 
Why? We still don't know. Later on, we connected it to a specific blogger who happened to have written something that, you know, got a little bit of traction and created that. But it, altogether, there's every country, every community is different. And for us, it was a lot about focusing on the product and accelerating where we see an organic trend. So if in Italy we saw that, that, that suddenly things were taking off, that pushed us to localize the, the, the product to Italian, translate it to Italian and languages and, and prompts, et cetera, and to help support that organic push. But that it's very hard to, to start that trend yourself you know, from, from nothing. And so really, I believe very strongly in, in accelerating organic trends. And if you don't see an organic trend, it's very, very hard to do this uh, artificially. Right. And so were you just like, you, know, you had this, you had this like social community focused updates on the app and the ability for people to gain insight into traffic through that. And you would, you would navigate traffic better. Was that something that you thought was just this competitive advantage that other people couldn't copy? Or was it the, that it was so like the acquiring of the community was the competitive advantage because someone else could have went and implemented that when you were early on, you know, a bigger player in this space, but it seemed like no one did that for a while. And you, you guys dominated that area. Was that a concern? So the, there were a bunch of things around that. Um, first of all, community is something that has to be built into the fabric of the company. It's not a feature that you tag, you add on later. And a lot of times I get these corporations that come in and you know, talk to me and then say, okay, we want to build a community. Well, it's nice that you want to build a community. The question is the community <laughs> want to be built by you, right? And, and that's really the question of... How are they a, a connecting a, or sort of the DNA of the company? So, for example, at, at Waze, from day one, like high-ranking community members had permissions to delete the 101 in California, right? They, they could do tremendous damage. The fact that mm. we gave them the ability to do that also meant, A, that they wouldn't do it, but it also meant that they understood the responsibility. And so now once we got acquired by Google, we met the Google Map people, and they had their own kind of community, and they were asking kind of, why is your community so active and ours isn't? And simple example, if you came to Waze and you edited a road, you created a road, you gave it a name, et cetera, you added it to the map, within 24 hours, it would be live. And you can now go to your friends to say, see, I, I created this road here, and you can drive on it, and you can traffic on it. On Google Maps, it would go to, a, a, the community would create it, it would go to an offshore center in, in India where it would be reviewed by people and it would take, take weeks or even months for that change to happen. And that's the kind of thing, if you're not trusting, if you don't trust the community, you know, and you're doing all that, then from the community member's perspective, why should they do it, you know, at the same time? So I think community really has to be the DNA of the company. That was for us, was from day one, it was very, very clear. Our whole strategy was built on community. It meant that I was open to them and, Founders were open to them. And it's really about people, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about features, right? They want to see that they can talk to the, the, the leadership team, that we involve them in what's going on. Obviously, we don't let them, deter, you know, dictate the, the process. But at the same time, they are, they are a very important part of what's happening. We trust them. And all these things can't be tagged on to an existing product. Mm -hmm. So when the acquisition was was happening, I believe it was Facebook was looked like they were going to acquire the company, and then it kind of changed direction. Like, could you just share more gnome into like how the acquisition from Google wound up happening? How you even got the billion dollar plus number, which is similar to Instagram at the time? So, you know, I, I just wrote a post about that. It's been ten years yeah. since, and so I finally opened up on it. And Google acquired us, but the first round with Google, 
we, we were in deep conversations with Facebook and for all kinds of reasons, uh, we ended up agreeing to give them a right of first refusal on Google, meaning we were afraid that Google would acquire, our, you know, that they, they'd work with us commercially, Google would come and acquire us, they wouldn't be able to compete. And so we agreed to that before we, we, we signed anything. I went to Google and I said, look, I'm assuming, you know, we, had, we really didn't have much contact with Google Maps people, right? They were competitors. And so I said, look, I'm assuming there isn't much interest, but if there is interest, this is the one time to discuss it because we're about to sign this agreement that will never allow us to do anything in the future. I mean, theoretically would, but practically wouldn't. And uh, they came back and said, yeah, we want to talk. And we started this whole process with them. And they said, yeah, we'd like to acquire you. And it was like very interesting. We met Larry and Sergey, like the, the whole process. And the whole time I was consistent that I, when I was asked how much I want, I said, we're looking for a billion dollars. At the end, they offered 450. And 450 is so far away from a billion. There's no way you can negotiate the gap. And so I basically at that point said, you know, Thank you and goodbye. We're not going to even negotiate. They were very surprised. They said, they said there must be a number between four fifty and a billion that we could agree on. I said, no, I want a billion. That's the number. <laughs> um, but I, Facebook, uh, I disclosed to them that we were negotiating with, with Google, and so they came out and asked me, "What would be the number that you won't shop around?" I said, "Billion dollars. I'm not going to shop around." And within an hour, I got a term sheet for a billion dollars, and signed yeah. it on the spot. And started the whole due diligence process with, with uh, Facebook. And there were a whole variety of, of issues in the process, which I, I talk about in my post. But basically, uh, at a certain point, Google realized this was going on and they, they gave what's called an unsolicited offer. So suddenly I get an email from Google with a $1.15 billion offer. And although I had signed a, a term sheet, I'm put in a fiduciary bind, right? I have to do what's right for my shareholders. Here's a better offer. I can't ignore it. And, you know, uh, obviously Facebook were not very happy about that. And that kind of ended that. When, and when our, our standstill ended, we continued with Google. And, you know, they acquired us for $1.15 billion. Mm -hmm. So you know, after you were CEO, you know, when it was Google for a bit, Chief Wazer, and then you decided to start your own thing. Like, how long did it take you to figure out this idea for, for Post? And, you know, why decide to build this new type of, of news company? So I, I've been obsessing about social networks and news and misinformation and disinformation for a very long time. And the thing that frustrated me the most is, yes, these issues are very complicated, but they're not more complicated than advertising and they're not more complicated than navigation. And you know, if you want to deal with these issues, you can solve them. I mean, Facebook knows you're going to buy a car before you know you're going to buy a car just by your search history, right? It's like there's so much that, that we can do here. And the biggest challenge is that the social networks don't have an interest to block misinformation and hate and toxicity and everything else that's going on, on their platform because that's part of their business model. You know, the more hate, the more time you spend, the more ads they show you. And so uh, with that, with the challenges that publishers have been going through and, and really fact-based journalism has been under attack by these networks for a while, you know, it seemed to me that we need to try something different. And that's really what Post is about. It's a social network that's really built for news, has publishers directly on the platform. It allows you, instead of subscribing to, some, to one news outlet, to basically purchase articles on a, you know, for several cents. You can purchase an article. Instead of spending $10, $20 a month on one, on one a publisher, you get to read different publishers. But you also get to read creators and experts and other people. You can share the content. You can mash it up. You can do all the kind of things that you expect from social. 
but with a built-in business model and with a strong emphasis on moderation and, and, and limiting toxicity and, and all the negative aspects of social. So it really is about intentionality. And, and I get asked a lot about, you know, why don't social media companies moderate their platform? Why do they allow the, the hate that's going on in their platform? And, you know, the first thing you have to do is have a, an interest or, or want to moderate. And if you don't want to, there are a lot of reasons not to, right? And you can find them. And that's really what's happening today. Social media platforms use a very simple algorithm. What's the minimum amount of moderation we need to use not to get regulated? And, you know, unfortunately, the U.S. political system is such that the odds of getting regulated are very low. And so they can go way out there and moderate a minimum. And, you know, Facebook might say we've moderated 99% of the hate speech. If you moderate something three days later, it doesn't really matter anymore. Right. It, it, within the first few hours where something happens, that's when the toxicity happens. A, a great example is the, the bombing of the hospital in Gaza a, a few weeks ago, where a, a, a Hamas missile basically misfired and fell in a hospital and, 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 and blew up part of the hospital. But the initial a, 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 a position of Hamas was Israel had bombed the hospital. And so right. for about five, six hours, Israel had to investigate whether it really was us. or We couldn't just make something up. So they investigated it. These five hours, the Hamas narrative was out there. It had spread everywhere. Now, the fact that five hours later, you can prove that it wasn't you, you know, who cares? The narrative is there. In social media, we've seen this often. The, the negative news flies much faster than the positive news or than the factual news. And so, again, it goes back to intentionality. If you don't want to moderate, there are a lot of reasons not to moderate. And the price we're paying is as a society. Mm. You know, I think I read, it, I read a bit about like how you think that Artifact is probably like one of the biggest, I think like they're like the closest thing to you. Like how different is Artifact from Post? And like what are some of the biggest differentiators that you have? So I, I think both of us kind of see the world similar in the sense that we believe that news needs to be reinvented, needs to be different. It needs to be social. And that there is, an, it's crucial that we do something about news before things go too late. <laughs> That being said, for us, I believe very strongly that business models drive behavior. And so unlike them, we've gone all the way in to build the business model in there that's good for the publisher and we believe for the consumer as well. And being able to create that situation, the consumer only pays for what they read and they pay a few cents for everything. And the publisher gets a, 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 not what they would like to get from subscription, but they get something much higher than ads on a, on a, on a CPM basis. And so we think we've found that kind of a, a average. You know, we all know the experience that you're on Twitter and someone shares an article and you click on the article and you hit a paywall. You're like, I want to read this article. Like, I don't want to sign up for the Atlantic uh, Observer. I want to read that one article. And there isn't a mechanism for that. Now, of course, subscription is the best business for a publisher, right? The reality is less than 2% actually subscribe. So their whole business is blocking 98% of people that want to read the article. And for us, we believe that if you could pay five cents and read that article, that's really the best scenario for everyone. You know, let everyone read it. It doesn't have to be free, right? But you can make a lot more than you would make from, from advertising. So you had like a couple hundred thousand people sign up for it when you put it out. You have some users now. Like, What do you think are the next steps known for this to become you know, much larger and be able to, I mean, you have the features built in, the accessibility is there, but what do you think will take it from you know, like the initial, the ways phase, and then to expand to 120 million users there. Like, you know, how do you, how do you build in scale it here? So obviously 
I'll have a much better story to tell you in a year about how it happened. Right. It's very hard <laughs> to predict the future because it hasn't happened yet. Um, but I think we're, we're still very much focused on understanding the right feature set, the right recommendation system, the right personalization, and being able to provide the right experience. So if you think about metrics, our most important metrics really is retention, right? Much more than, you know, obviously I'd love to have 100 million users tomorrow, but what's much more important right now is that I can retain the users that come. And retention okay. really is the best indication of do people like your product? You know, if, they, if they're not staying with your product, they don't like it. It's very simple, right? And so that's really what we're focused on, really building that. What we're seeing from a growth perspective is we have a lot of, of cooperation with different types of creators, different uh, creators online, whether it's newsletter writers or opinion shapers kind of on Twitter and things like that. And for them, we're providing kind of the long form and the monetization platform. And so, you know, you can get your newsletters instead of in your inbox, you get them in your feed. If you like what you're reading, you can tip the creator and the creator can respond to the comments directly in, in what's happening. And when they write long form, they can write it on posts. You can write long form and edit your content and then they share it on other platforms. And that's really what's driving a lot of the growth on our platform. How important is it to you to have local news shared? I know that's something you talked about a bit that that local news, you can serve it up in different areas, kind of like, uh, by, it's kind of, it's some, there's similarities to ways as well there, like with having alerts and people providing alerts in your area, like how much of, an, of a, a competitive advantage do you think that that will have once you, you fully implement it? So in general, I don't like the words competitive advantage. People love to talk yeah. about moats. <laughs> it, it all goes back to this idea that there's a feature that you have that no one else has, and that feature is going to make or break your business. And it doesn't work that way. I mean, anybody can build anything, right? It really goes back to intentionality, into vision and mission and what you're building and how everything interacts together. Um, and so for us, when you think about local, um, obviously local news is under tremendous pressure. People love local news, but people don't want to subscribe to the local news. And, and that's kind of the challenge. People care about their local news. And so we think that, that our platform, because today on mobile apps, you can tell where the person is. If you know where they are, you can serve up the right uh, local news. We think that's going to be very powerful. We're very close to launching that as a feature. Um, but it's a variety of things, right? It's a variety of topics. Like right now, I care very strongly about what's happening in the Ukraine and what's happening in Israel, in the, where I believe these kind of work, the, the big conflicts of, of the future of Western democracy are happening in these wars right now. So I can follow these topics on post and get that content in my feed. But more than that, we've brought on English language, Ukrainian publishers onto the platform. So you can get the, the, the analysis of someone who lives there, who's local in English that you can read instead of having to read what an American journalist thinks about what's happening in the Ukraine. And that's where we want to get hyper-local in that sense, that when you care about something, it's people that, reporters that are in that area that are writing about it and not sitting somewhere else and rewriting a Reuters feed. How do you determine the right type of price point for unlocking an article? Because people, like you said, there's only so many that will do the subscriptions. But if there's a certain price that maybe it's not too high, you kind of find that middle ground, then they'll pay for a certain article. So how do you determine what's the right price generally? So we're learning a lot about Price and we do believe in the future that we'll, the pricing will be algorithmic on the platform as well. But yeah. right now, uh, what we're seeing is there's kind of a cutoff at around ten cents, up to ten cents. People view it more or less as free, and you, know, you see the, the the purchase rate and the click through rates there go go through the roof. At the same time, once you get a, above sort of twenty twenty five cents, 
there's a much a sort of a drop off in volume. Sometimes right. that drop off is worth it for the publisher, but not for the user. Right. So we're trying to understand those different things, and then, and these are kind of, we, we have a lot of data we can share with publishers about how they should price their content. But it's a, it's a big obviously mystery that we're improving uh, over time about what is the right price. But one of the things we added in lately is that you can is the ability to read the content on the publisher's site as well. So if you see mm -hmm. on post, there's always, you know, read for, for three cents or read it on CNN or, or read it on The Independent, et cetera. And that's important for us for two reasons. One is, first of all, just doing what's right for the user, right? If, if the same article is available for free on CNN with a bunch of ads or if for three cents on post, we want the user to choose what they want. And what we've seen is by adding this in, the rate of people reading grew like 80% with hardly any yeah. impact on the purchasing. Because at the end of the day, when you get used to reading without the ads and the pop-ups and the, all the stuff that you see on publisher sites, you know, and, and it, it just becomes so much uh, uh, harder to go and, and, and deal with these terrible user experiences when you can get it simple and quick without ads, just read what you want and move on. And, and so we're seeing a lot of these very interesting things about kind of changing behavior that people have over what is it to pay three cents versus to go and deal with the hassle of either signing up or, or dealing with the ads or everything else you have on the publisher sites. So the last question that I have just on back on ways for a second. So when the acquisition happened, you know, it was, it was unprecedented in Israeli culture, et cetera. You know, it was, it was quite something new. Like what, what was it like and what, what did it feel like that experience of being able to achieve this type of acquisition for, you know, the state of Israel at the time? So building a global consumer brand is by far, I say the, 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 the you know, the, highest level a startup can uh, 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 aspire to, right? It's really building a brand that transcends where you're from or what you're doing and, and is known. Obviously, we like to think about Google and Facebook and things like that. But on a, on a lower level, it's the same question. And Israel had never really built consumer brands. Israel was known for deep tech, for uh, cyber, for telecom, for chips, for a lot of these kind of uh, hard components. And Whenever Israeli companies tried to build brands, they, they usually failed spectacularly. And so there was this kind of wisdom that Israelis don't know how to build consumer products. And I personally think that's obviously not true. And I think for us, it was the first time that we managed to prove it. We had to really prove that, you know what, Israelis can build great products and great brands and brands that consumers care about. And, and this is something I find still to this day amazing that no matter where I go in the world, et cetera, I see people using Waze. If I say that I worked at Waze, immediately everybody wants to talk to you. There's, there's kind of that, that emotional connection with the brand, which is the hardest thing to build. But in terms of the Israeli ecosystem, it really accelerated the Israeli ecosystem in terms of, of what expectations are for startups, how much money people were investing in Israel, the type of companies they were investing in. It really was a pivotal moment, I think, for the Israeli high-tech ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Well, no, you know, I appreciate you coming on. I think you, you have a great story. I mean, you did something incredible that changed the maps world and now you're, you're trying to revolutionize news. And, you know, I think you have some, some pretty good ideas in this area as well. So I'm excited to see what you do with Post and what you do next. Thank you. And if you're interested, you can check out Post at post.news or in any of the app stores. Thanks awesome. a lot.